0: You're listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church of Van Holstein. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. Well, good morning. Good to see you today. Uh, Happy Father's Day to you guys. I was reflecting on uh, what is uh, one of life's greatest joys and one of life's greatest challenges one of the clear evidences of the grace of God in my life, and that is uh, the responsibility and the privilege of being a dad. And so uh, we celebrate you guys today, and thank you so much for your influence in not only your individual families, but in our church family, and hope that you uh, have a great, great day. Um, I am so grateful to see you here today. I was beginning to wonder Thursday evening uh, if... Uh, We were going to make it through some of these weather uh, patterns we've had recently. Uh, We had some friends in East Texas who were actually hit the day before we were. And one of those pop-up storms, Uh, we were seeing some pictures on social media and we saw some pretty significant damage. And I knew that they'd had some really, really um, rough, rough weather out there. And I reached out to one of my former staff members who now pastors my previous church and said, you guys okay? And he's like, you won't believe what happened. He said it went from beautiful to green to 100-mile-an-hour winds in six minutes. So you think about how fast something like that can pop up on you. And we knew that a number of our friends said that they were out driving in it. Uh, and as far as we know, uh, no one was uh, physically injured in that. Now, many suffered a significant damage to vehicles and houses and all those kind of things, but um just so grateful that uh, everyone's doing okay. I think uh, some, we've had some folks with... Uh, Krolls, you got power now, right? A couple of days, right? A couple of days. Good. Um, I know we had some people that were, you know, we had about eight hours without power, but that was most of the night, and so... By time to make coffee that next morning, our power was back on, so I was good to go. But um, uh, other people, uh, a little bit longer than that, so I'm so glad that we're, we're doing well and uh, good to see you today. Well, this is week three in our summer sermon series in the book of Psalms, and in uh, this series, we've been looking at uh, the variety, the wide variety of functions that are found in, in the book of Psalms. Uh, there are Psalms of Lament. There are psalms of praise and thanksgiving. Uh, There are psalms celebrating God's law. Uh, There are psalms of wisdom and confidence. Uh, There are royal psalms. Uh, There are historical psalms and prophetic psalms. Just to name a few of the functions that we find within this collection of poetry that we know as the psalms. Last week we looked at Psalm 6, an individual lament of David. Uh, And one of uh, what they called the penitential psalms. It was a a cry for forgiveness, a cry of confession, uh, a deep understanding of one's sinfulness and the need for God's forgiveness. Um, Before we get to Psalm 9, which is where we're going to be today, and so if you have your Bibles and haven't turned there already, go ahead and turn to Psalm 9. I want to tell you about a little bit of a parenting fail. Uh, This was a number of years ago now, our oldest son, Matt, who just recently turned 31, I think he was 11 or 12 at the time, uh, had already been playing baseball for a couple of seasons up to that point, and it seemed like pretty suddenly he was struggling to hit the baseball, and uh, we began to, you know, as a dad, of course, naturally, I've got to fix his mechanics and all that stuff, you know, and so we're working on it, and it just seemed like nothing seemed to help, and um, I think someday, uh, you know suggested to us, well, maybe you need to get his eyes checked. And we're like, oh, yeah, that's, that's a good thought. You know, so we take our son to the optometrist, and sure enough, Matt needed glasses. Um, but where I really felt <laughs> the worst uh, was on our way home from the optometrist after getting his glasses, I look in the rearview mirror, and Matt is looking at the world around him as we're making our way back from Corpus Christi to Alice, Texas, as if he was discovering a whole new world. It was as if he was like, like the grass is green, Dad. Like you know, he's like, I felt ter- we felt terrible. We're like, you know, had we only known, we would have gotten him to the optometrist sooner. Uh, but those glasses changed completely his perspective, and it was pretty amazing how pretty quickly after that he started hitting the ball better. It's amazing what you can do when you can actually see the baseball, you know. And so, um, I think one of the things that we need in life many times is a change of perspective. Uh, My sister and I were talking about that this past week. She's currently going through some cancer treatment and was talking about how, you know, there's about 10 days uh, into right after each of her treatments where she feels pretty sick. And, uh, and we are just talking about how, you know, how the crises of life, the challenges of life will often change your perspective on things. And you'll find yourself, for example, you know, complaining less about things that really don't matter all that much. And she said, yeah, like I had a friend this last week who was complaining about having to do so much laundry in her massive RV while she's on vacation. You know, I'm like, yeah, it's it's." it's pretty amazing. And I, we saw some friends even in East Texas this week as they're looking at the rubble uh, and and the destruction that they've just experienced personally, their own property. And yet in the midst of that, they're also praising God because no one in their family was injured or harmed. Uh, and so while you're deeply disappointed and maybe even shedding some, some tears uh, over the loss that you've experienced uh, in, the, in the grand scheme of things, and as a matter of perspective, you say, really, this is just stuff that can be replaced. Uh, and so I say all that to say, Psalm chapter 9, if I had to give this morning's message a title, I would call it, Thankful Through Tears. Have you ever been at a place in life, maybe a season of life, even where you found yourself just shedding a few tears, but yet you could also, in the midst of that time, express gratitude and thanksgiving to God? Not always easy, but that's what we find in Psalm chapter nine. So, like we've done the last couple of weeks, I'm going to ask you to stand with me again, and we're going to together in unison read Psalm chapter nine. If you don't have an ESV uh, copy of the Word of God today, I'm going to encourage you to read off of the screen so that we can all be on the same page. And so, let's read this aloud together. Psalm nine: I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. Count all your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruin. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice. And he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed. A stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk in the pit that they made, in the net that they hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known, he has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. One of the first things I want us to notice from Psalm 9 this morning is the importance of giving thanks in faith. Now, I don't know about you, but I find it a whole lot easier to give thanks when things are going well, when all the bills are paid, everybody's healthy, things seem to be going my way. It's a whole lot easier to give thanks in those seasons than when it's not going so well, right? Well, I think what we find here is the importance of giving thanks in faith. Psalm 9 is an unusual psalm, and it's unusual in the sense that it richly combines thanksgiving with lament. Uh, In many ways, it is the very definition of thankful through tears. The psalm opens with this rich, Heartfelt, enthusiastic thanksgiving and praise. In fact, it's not until we actually get to verse 13 that we hear David's plea for deliverance and realize that he is in a season of distress or even danger when he writes this psalm. His life's in danger and he cries to the one who delivers him from what he describes as the gates of death. And yet, the first and dominant theme of this psalm is thanksgiving. And praise. Listen to the words of verses one and two once again. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. You ever do something half heartedly? David is saying here, I am going to give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. He declares his determination to give thanks to the Lord wholeheartedly, even in his distress. Now we're we're told in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 that we are to give thanks in all circumstances. All circumstances. Many times we Christians, we, uh, we will wonder and we will ask, what is God's will for my life? What is God's will for my life? And I would submit to you this morning that God tells us his will for our lives in 1 Thessalonians 5. It's pretty explicit. It says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now That doesn't give us clearly a complete picture, but it's very clear that that's God's will for our lives. Now, of course, when we ask that question, that's not the kind of answer we're looking for. Like We're looking for, what's my life going to look like two months from now, or six months from now, or two years from now? That's, That's more like what we want to know. In fact, we're not even as concerned with what God has planned for our ultimate future. God gives us some really relevant and important information as it relates to that question. Because we know from Scripture, if we belong to God through faith in Jesus Christ, our future in glory with the Lord has been secured through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So God's ultimate will, then, is to bring us home to be with himself and then give us a resurrection body, perfect and glorious, for eternity, to be with himself in the new heavens and the new earth. Even that's not good enough for us many times. We don't just want to know what God wants us to do today, where we will be forever. We often want to know the roadmap of our lives And certainly, there have been times where I've thought to myself, man, it would be awesome if I could just like open an email from God and he would have it spelled out exactly what he wants to do, almost like turn-by-turn directions on your GPS, right? That would really clear up some confusion for some of us during certain seasons of our life. But that's not something that God tells us. And I think the reason for that is because he wants us to live by faith, to live by faith. Think about how worthless many of us would be if we knew the future, Like if we knew the future, if we knew everything that was coming. I mean, the way that that would change the way we live and the way that we would prioritize certain things, if we we could see that and know all of that, God intends for us to live by faith. Well, David gives thanks in all circumstances here, and he resolves that he will praise God in his thanksgiving. So specifically, David says that he will praise God for his wonderful deeds and that he will sing praise to God's name. That, That is true worship. We often talk about that here. True worship is to focus not only on what God has done or even is doing, but focusing on who God is. It's his very character. It's, it's his nature. And so when David mentions God's name, he addresses God here as O Most High, which is a reference to God's supreme power, an aspect of God's character that is incredibly relevant to the distress that David is experiencing here. So when we are in distress, when we're going through a difficult patch, whatever you want to call it, we need to stop and give thanks and praise God. Even in that, this is what turns our perspective from being self-centered being, uh, to being God-centered. You see, the only way to truly live a life of faith is to do so in a God-centered way. A self-centered life of faith is actually a contradiction, focusing exclusively on ourselves and naturally our circumstances, which leads to, to self-pitying despair. It's that, that point where you go, I don't deserve this, I deserve better, or to self-loathing hatred. So This often short-circuits our life of faith. Giving thanks, praising God for who he is and what he has done lifts our eyes from our circumstances to the one who is most high, seated on his throne far above our circumstances. Then I want you to notice secondly this morning the importance of proclaiming the truth in faith. So not only does David give thanks and praise God, he also proclaims the truth in faith. Much of this psalm is actually a proclamation of who God is and what God has done and will do. David proclaims to the people of God, to his enemies, and to God himself in worship, the greatness of God what God has done for him in the past, and, and by faith what God will do in the future. So listen again to the text, picking it up in verse 7. He says, "...but the Lord sits enthroned forever." He has established his throne for justice. He judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. What an amazing proclamation of praise. What a potent combination. And it spells out for us what should be the pattern of our lives as well. It's this combination of proclamation and praise and then exhortation to others to praise and proclamation. It's one of the reasons that we value and prioritize the church gathered. It's why we come together each week. Is so that we can together lift up our voices and praise and sing together, Christ is enough for me. And we're singing that together. We're proclaiming it together. We can together proclaim the gospel as we sing, while our sins they are many, his mercy is more. And what strength is found in singing that and knowing that and, and, and understanding that alongside others who claim the name of Jesus, our, our family of faith. And that's what what David is doing here. That's what we should be doing in our lives. Whether we're stressed out and overwhelmed, whether we're under pressure, whether we're being tempted or feeling wonderful, we should always give thanks and praise to God, tell others about his greatness and goodness, and call others to join us in praising and proclaiming him. Specifically. In his proclamation of who God is and what he has done, David proclaims the sovereign justice of God. You ever thought to yourself in the midst of this crazy sinful world that some things just aren't fair? I know I have. I'm just like, why? Why is that person battling cancer when this person seems to be doing amazing? And and if it was up to me, those roles would be switched, right? There's just some things that that don't make sense to us. That's where we have to trust the very sovereignty of God and understand who he is. And so in this, what David is saying was he's proclaiming it boldly and clearly for two reasons. Because he believed it to be true. And number two, because he found all of his hope in the truth of the sovereignty of God. When the challenges of everyday life intersect with our profession of faith, I wonder if we can say the same thing about our theology. In other words, do we really believe what we say we believe about God? Have we staked all of our hopes on God being who we say we believe He is? Or is our theology just something that we like to talk about on Sunday mornings and then we sort of plan around it on Monday through Saturday? You see, it's very easy for us to come together and, and, and even appear to be worshiping uh, in, in, in a sincere way and all of those things, but then the rest of the week live as if God doesn't exist. And that's the problem. That's the hypocrisy that is uncovered in Scripture. Scripture. In other words, do we sing about, do we read about, do we pray about a sovereign God and then live as if we have to somehow be our own savior, our own provider, our own protector? I'm not suggesting we live irresponsibly. David, he had his army, and he had his mighty men, and he trained for war against his enemies. But David ultimately staked his life, his future, his hope firmly on the truth that God is sovereign and just and a refuge for the oppressed. John Piper said that we cannot commend what we do not cherish. Another way to think uh, that is that, that we will not boldly proclaim a theology that we merely profess and do not dearly possess. And I hope this morning when it comes to your theology and your understanding and belief of who God is, it's not just something that you give lip service to, that you profess it, but that you truly possess it. And David is doing that here as he proclaims the truth in faith. I want you to notice that he continues and he cries out in faith. He cries out in faith. This is where these things intersect. This is where now we begin to see this distress that he's dealing with and this season in which he finds himself. And so in the midst of giving thanks and proclaiming God to others, David is in deep distress. And so he cries out to God in faith. The clearest way to see this is to look at the petitions of David here in Psalm 9. In other words, what does David ask God to do? Let's look at it together. Verses 13 and 14. He says, Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. And then if you skip down to verses 19 and 20, he says, arise, O Lord. Let no man prevail. Let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. And so in those few verses right there, we have these four petitions. First he says, be gracious to me. Then he says, see me. Then he says, arise. And Then he says, let the nations be judged. Put them in fear. Let the nations know that they are but men. We might say it this way, Lord, put them in their place. When I was in elementary school, in Etheridge Elementary School in Garland, Texas, there was a guy in my, I think it was my fourth grade, maybe my fifth grade class. He was just a bully, just a bully. I mean, on the playground, he was always like, you know, kind of just bullying his way and just always seemed like he was starting fights and everything. And, and there, there were so many times that I wanted to just put him in his place. Like one of those people, like, man, if I could just do anything I wanted out here, would never get in trouble, I would punch that guy in the nose. Like I just would. And then as we get older, hopefully we mature to the point that we, we don't act on those impulses, right? But there's times where you're thinking, I would just love to put that person in their place. It's kind of what David is is crying out for. He's asking, God, you are sovereign. You are sovereign. Please put these evil people in their place. Notice David's petition, though, begins with this this plea to be gracious to me. There's more to that than meets the eye. David is acknowledging by this plea that he does not deserve to have God act on his behalf. When you see him ask for God to be gracious to him like use grace in dealing with me, he doesn't approach God on the basis of what he thinks he deserves. He doesn't try to boast in his accomplishments or his merits. His attention is focused on God's nature and God's character, not his own. So he doesn't come to God, in other words, and say, you need to act on my behalf because I'm the king of Israel, or because I'm the champion who slew Goliath, or or don't you know that I'm the man after God's own heart? So David begins by asking God to be gracious. And then he asks God to see his affliction from those who hate him. He's already proclaimed God's sovereign justice, that God rules, and that he rules as one who is just. So he trusts that if God takes special notice of his afflictions, then God will do right. God will act justly. Even though he is not approaching God on the basis of his own merits, he is still trusting God to be who God is, to be just, to do right, to act justly. So how does he express what he wants God to do? He says, arise, O Lord, arise. That's not terminology that we use very much in in our day, right? This request, it's repeated several times in the Psalms. And it is always a call for God to act in a sovereign and just way on behalf of his own people who are oppressed and needy. Arise, O God. Act on our behalf. And so when God arises, he acts as the defender of the powerless, the warrior who fights on behalf of the needy and the oppressed. And so what exactly does David ask God to do when he arises? Well, he doesn't really tell God exactly what to do, which is probably a good posture for us, right? Sometimes I think we feel like God needs us to serve him in an advisory way. God doesn't need us to serve on an advisory council, okay? Instead, what he does is he asks God to essentially put the pagan nations that surround God's people in their place, Let the nations be judged. Put them in fear. Let them know that they are but men. And so if you take this threefold petition together as a whole, David is asking God to manifest his glorious, sovereign justice in the eyes of the nations. To show the nations clearly who he is as the sovereign, just, holy judge and ruler of the nations. And what's fascinating is this, and this is where you cannot separate the Old and New Testaments, okay? What's fascinating is how Jesus said that he would answer this petition to let God arise. Arise, O Lord, or even arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered. Because in John chapter 12, listen to this, it says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world, meaning the enemy, Satan, be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Jesus will arise and judge the world, cast out the supreme oppressor of God's people by being lifted up on a cross to die. God will display his character and his mercy and his glorious sovereign justice by the death of the Son of God on the cross. God humbles and silences sinners through the cross and we see our sin and its cost and our utter helplessness to save ourselves. So when we come to the cross, we also see the gracious deliverance of God and have the deepest reason to thank God and praise him and to proclaim him to the world. Then I want you to notice something else before we close this morning. David here expresses how he's seeing deliverance in faith. The last thing we're going to examine, it's this unique feature that we might easily miss. I want you to notice that David speaks of the yet future judgment of the nations and the yet future deliverance of God's people as though it were already an accomplished reality. Now, I don't know about you, but one of the things that I think characterize a man of integrity, a person of integrity, is that we're truth-tellers, that our word should be valued. That when we say something, we, we mean it. We are telling the truth. And so people around us can say, man, if Pastor Mike says it, it's, a, it's, a good, it's as good as done, right? I want to be that kind of person. And we see that perfectly portrayed for us in God himself. Notice what it says back to verses 5 and 6. And I want you to notice that to us, in our English reading of this text, this really sounds like past tense, because it is. It says, you have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities, you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. Look down at verses 15 and 17. The nations have sunk in the pit that they made, in the net that they hid. Their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. The wicked shall return to Sheol. All the nations that forget God. So here's the amazing thing. These things that were not yet ultimately accomplished realities... Certainly, all the nations that forget God were not yet cast down to the grave. The nations had not yet all been rebuked. The Lord had not yet blotted out their name forever. <laughs> David knows, excuse me, that these realities are yet future. As we can see in verse number 18, where it says, For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. So, what's going on here? What's going on? Why is David speaking of God's ultimate judgment of the nations and his full and final deliverance of his people in the past tense as though it were already an accomplished reality? It's because these verses are what we call prophetic perfects. Prophetic perfects. The perfect tense indicates an accomplished reality or a completed past action that has ongoing effects for the present. Now here, David is speaking prophetically of what God will accomplish, and yet he uses language that indicates that God has already accomplished it. This is is frequently seen in Old Testament prophecy. In Isaiah chapter 40, it says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended. Her iniquity is pardoned. That she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Same concept. In Isaiah 53, a text that's probably more familiar to us because uh, we we use it uh, around Easter especially. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And yet as one from whom the men hid their faces, he was despised, esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we have streamed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It was written by Isaiah the prophet. Isaiah the prophet. This is not written in one of the pastoral epistles after the death and and resurrection of Jesus. So the prophetic perfect is seen throughout Old Testament prophecy, but that's not the only place. We also find it in the book of Romans chapter 8. Where Paul writes this he says for those whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that we might that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and those whom he predestined he also called and those whom he called he also justified and those whom he justified he also glorified Wait a minute past 10 now, as good as you look today, not one of you looked to be glorified to me. I know I'm not because I'm still wearing this crazy insulin pump. Okay. And so, what do we see here? We see this same concept. It's this prophetic perfect. What's the significance of the prophetic perfect? This is not just pastoral lingo or or you know theological nerd stuff. Here's where the rubber meets the road for us today. If God has decreed something and promised it in his word, it is as good as accomplished. Let me try that again because only Doug said amen right there. (laughs) If God has decreed something and promised it in his word, it is as good as accomplished. That's better. We don't have to worry about whether or not Jesus will really come back again, judge the nations, vanquish all evil, and bring us into glory. Because in the decrees of God, these events are a settled and accomplished reality. It's sometimes what we call the tension of the already but not yet. The already but not yet. And so, if you're here this morning and you've turned from your sin to faith in Jesus Christ, you are fully free, fully forgiven, fully saved. But yet, that's not yet complete. Like, there's this sense in which we still live in a very broken, sinful world in the midst of a very, in, in, the, in the presence of sin itself, and we still deal with it every day, right? It's so like we said, until we're glorified, we're going to continue to confess and repent and turn from that sinfulness. But our position before God himself is that we are fully free, fully forgiven. It's as good as done. Those things are more certain than this morning's sunrise. If we align our faith with God's decrees, we will see our future final redemption finished and secure in Christ. And we'll have reason to give thanks and rejoice in the midst of the turmoil of our journey toward that glorious consummation. That's why I often say, one of the, I think one of the, the reasons that we sputter so much in our spiritual journey is because we do not live out of our current reality, our, 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 our position in Christ. Yes, we are all works in progress. Yes, we are all, I, I hope and pray, striving daily to be conformed to the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. But you will never be more saved than you are in this moment because of what Christ has done. And so this seems to me to be the key to authentically be thankful through tears. It's not because you just... you know get a stiff upper lip and try to think positive thoughts. No, it's seeing our glorious future, a glorious redemption through eyes of faith as an accomplished reality. That is true faith in our fortress who is the Lord himself, that he will never fail to be a stronghold for the oppressed and that the cry of the afflicted and the hope of the poor will be vindicated by him in his sovereign justice and full and final redemption of his own. It's as good as done. As good as accomplished. So we can see deliverance by faith. I don't know about you, but there are days when I probably pay more attention to the news than I should. And I find myself discouraged and maybe even despairing a little bit, thinking, man, why why do I even do what I do? It's like as a minister of the gospel, you feel like you're out there just trying to punch holes in the darkness, right? But it seems like the darkness just gets deeper and it's more depressing all the time. We live in a mixed-up world. When I look to Jesus... I look to the one who has said, It is finished. (laughs) It's done. That's where my hope lies. And so, even in seasons marked by tears, I can be thankful through tears. If we could bow our heads for just a moment. As we move into a time of decision, I want to remind you that it's my firm belief that everyone in the room this morning makes some kind of a decision. It may not be one that is expressed to others. It may not be a, a physical step toward the front this morning or anything like that. We will all ultimately decide what we're going to do with what we've heard from God's word today. You might choose to ignore it. You might choose to be indifferent to it. You can choose to allow God, by His Holy Spirit and His Word, to do a work in your life. That may look different from person to person. Because we're all in different places in our life right now. Some of you may be in a season, much like David describes here, that is marked by some distress and even some despair. Certainly difficulty. Maybe it's a recent medical diagnosis for you. Maybe it's an uncertain future as it relates to your job situation. Maybe there's some desperate challenges in your relationships. But even in the midst of that, know that God is working. It's in the book of Job. The book of Job. Think about Job's story. The loss and the pain and the suffering that he experienced. In fact, we, we use his name as synonymous with difficulty. We're going through an especially difficult patch. We'll often say, I feel like Job right now. What does Job say? Though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. Though he slay me, yet will I praise him. It's not easy. It's not easy. But because of the nature and character of God himself, we can be thankful through tears. If you're here today and you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, no one understand that it is not about you being a good person. It's not about you being better than anybody else. It's about you understanding that in no way can you save yourself. On your best day, you can't be good enough. So you must fully and completely trust the only one who died in our place, paying a debt that he did not owe, dying a death he did not deserve so that we could live a life that we could not earn. There may be some here today who say, Pastor, I'm just in a really desperate season right now and I I need prayer. Love to pray with you. So, Father, I just pray that you would work in our hearts and lives even now. Lord, I pray for those who are in a season of life where things seem to be going real well. The bills are all paid, the family's healthy. Going to go and enjoy a great lunch today with family and friends. Lord, we thank you for those seasons. Lord, never, may we never take for granted you sovereignly working in our lives. Lord, I pray for those today who are going through an especially difficult time, who may have days and seasons of doubt, discouragement, and maybe even despair. I pray, God, that because of your nature and your character, We could all understand the importance of giving thanks even through tears. So God, we trust you and we thank you that because of who you are, what you have declared, what you have decreed, what you have said, even about us as we are in Christ, is as good as done. Thank you, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine. For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com.